welcome to the Church in the Peak podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, visit churchinthepeak.org. Peter's going to come and speak. Hi. Who? I'm very loud. Um, who, who was here last week? So more than half, that's good. So um, last week, um, we were continuing in our kind of story as we worked through uh, the, the book of Joshua. And uh, it befalls me to, to go into the next chapter today. And I just want to just speak a little bit about last week's um, and just kind of finish off from there and tell some of that story so that we've got some context for what we're going to look at today. So last week, we were in Joshua 7. And uh, the thing that happened in Joshua 7 was that um, Joshua decided that they would go and attack the city of Ai. And uh, so they went up and they got thoroughly trounced, didn't they? And uh, they got beaten and they, they had to retreat all of a sudden. And, um, and uh, the, the thing that Joshua did was he just presumed that God would be with him that he'd go and do what he wanted to do, and that God would bless him in that. And he just presumed that, that it would all be okay. And it wasn't, because it wasn't God's will for him to go and attack that city. And um, I think sometimes we, we treat God a little bit like a cash machine. You go to the cash machine, you presume that when you stick in your card and type in your number, that money comes out. I know sometimes that doesn't happen for other reasons, um, but, but most of the time you presume if there's money in the account, you can take it out. And um, Joshua was, was a bit like that with God, you know, I'll just go do what I normally do and I know that I'll get something back. And um, sometimes if we treat God like that, we go to the cash machine and God says, I don't really like what you're planning to spend the money on. So therefore, I'm not going to give you any. Now, that's kind of difficult because that's not the kind of response we expect from a cash machine, is it? But that's the way we treat God sometimes is, I just, you know, I'm going to go do this thing. So therefore, because I know you, I know you're going to be with me and it'll all be okay. And it's not always okay. So that was one of the things from last week. And then, and then at the end of the chapter, we read about uh, the family of Achan. And Achan takes some of the spoils of this war, and um, they, he gets um, some of the treasures. And um, God had said, I don't want you to have any of the, the things that you, of the cities you attack. And he's taken them, and he's hidden them, and he kind of buries them underneath his tent. And... Um, some people said afterwards, well, how come um, Achan gets stoned to death, but also all of his family got stoned to death? And some people kind of asked the question, well, how come the whole family gets stoned to death? Well, I don't know about you, but if I dug a big hole underneath my tent, I think my family would know there was a big hole underneath the tent. And uh, they'd be very aware of it. And so God effectively calls out the whole of Israel and, and gives them this opportunity to say, you know, actually, we've done wrong here. We've taken what we shouldn't have taken. And, you know, we're really sorry for that. But actually, God hones down until he gets to this family of Achan. And they've had so many opportunities to repent. And they just don't. 
And unfortunately, they paid the price for that. And I find that really difficult. As I read those kind of stories, I just find them very hard. So, this week, we arrive at chapter 8. Now, there's a bit of reading, so um, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Joshua 8, I'm going to read it from the New Living just because it's easier. I think it will come up in that version um, on the screen. So then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid or discouraged. Take the entire army and attack Ai, for I've given to you the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You will destroy them as you destroyed Jericho and its king. But this time you may keep the captured goods and the cattle for yourself. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the army of Israel set out to attack Ai. Joshua chose 30,000 fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Hide in ambush close behind the city and be ready for action. When our main army attacks, the men of Ai will come out to fight as they did before and we will run away from them. We will let them chase us until they have all left the city. For they will say, the Israelites are running away from us as they did before. And then you will jump up from your ambush and take possession of the city for the Lord your God will give it to you. Set the city on fire as the Lord has commanded. You have your orders. So they left that night and lay in ambush between Bethel and the west side of Ai. But Joshua remained amongst the people in the camp at night. Early the next morning, Joshua roused his men and started towards Ai, accompanied by the leaders of Israel. They camped on the north side of Ai with a valley between them and a city. That night, Joshua sent 5,000 men to lie in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. So they stationed the main army north of the city and the ambush west of the city. And Joshua himself spent the night in the valley. When the king of Ai saw the Israelites across the valley, he and all of his army hurriedly went out early the next morning and attacked the Israelites at a place overlooking the Jordan Valley. But he didn't realize there was an ambush behind the city. Joshua and the Israelite army fled towards the wilderness as though they were badly beaten, and all the men of the city were called out to chase after them. In this way, they were lured away from the city, and there was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not chase after the Israelites, and the city was left wide open. Then the Lord said to Joshua, point your spear towards Ai, for I will give you the city. Joshua did as he was commanded. As soon as Joshua gave the signal, the men in ambush jumped up and poured into the city, and they quickly captured it and set it on fire. When the men of Ai looked behind them, smoke from the city was filling the sky, and they had nowhere to go. For the Israelites who had fled in the direction of the wilderness now turned on their pursuers. When Joshua and the other Israelites saw that the ambush had succeeded and that smoke was rising from the city, they turned and attacked the men of Ai. Then the Israelites who were inside the city came out and started killing the enemy from the rear. So the men of Ai were caught in a trap and all of them died. Not a single person survived or escaped. Only the king of Ai was taken alive and brought to Joshua. When the Israelite army finished killing all the men outside the city, they went back and finished off everyone inside. So the entire population of Ai was wiped out that day, 12,000 in all. For Joshua kept holding out his spear until everyone who'd lived in Ai was completely destroyed. And only the cattle and the treasures of the city were not destroyed, for the Israelites kept for themselves as the Lord had commanded Joshua. So Ai became a permanent mound of ruins, desolate to this very day. 
Joshua hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until the evening. At sunset, the Israelites took down the body and threw it in front of the city gate, and they piled a great heap of stones over him that can still be seen today. Now, I don't know how you feel about a passage like that. I was dead impressed when I was given this to speak on. (laughs) It was, um, I I read that kind of thing, and I don't know about you, but it kind of makes me feel really sick. That's not the kind of thing we expect to be reading in the Bible. And as we work through a a, a book like Joshua, we'd probably be forgiven just for kind of skipping that bit because it's it's kind of tough it doesn't fit with our kind of understanding and um but we can't just skip over it we're told that everything in the bible is is useful and so it's good for us to deal with these difficult things as they come up and i must say it's one of the hardest things that i've had to prepare Reading um, all the different commentaries and things that I've read about this passage, um, I just find it incredibly repulsive. Um, I really struggled with it. It's barbaric. And, um, you know, if we were asked to describe what happened in Joshua 8, I think you'd use words like genocide or ethnic cleansing. And that's what we see. Now... The norms of their society that they were living in, uh, the people of Israel, the people of Ai, were really different to the ones that we live in. Their values were slightly different and their norms were a, a wee bit different. We read in the passages around this about the fact that they sacrificed children to gods. We read about their sexual liberty. They had multiple wives. They intermarried within families. They got married as young teens or or even before. There was capital punishment for things that we would consider naughty and people got killed for it. They were murdered because of doing wrong. And we don't understand that in our modern kind of legal framework that we have both here in the UK and around the world. It kind of, we read about things like that and it doesn't fit, it doesn't sit comfortably with us. But they were a very different society to the one that we experience. And the views on this passage have changed massively over the years. I had a read of Matthew Henry's commentary, which was mentioned a few weeks ago um, by Neil. And he was saying, it's really great. Get Matthew Henry, have a read of it. He really understands kind of what goes on. He can relate it back. He's just brilliant at opening up the Bible. And this is what he says about this passage. He says, the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. I.e., he was saying, it's fine to go and plunder those who are evil. He was writing that in the 1700s. He died in 1714. Their thinking, as he wrote that, was really different. And his experience of war, his experience of uh, what he saw around him in the world was really different from what we see around us. 
And I think what troubles me about a passage like this is is we know that these passages have been used as justification for doing all kinds of wrong in the past. The Crusades, the 12 and 1300s, you know, they went out and they murdered many people in the name of God. What we saw in Rwanda just a few years ago, actually they used passages like this to say it's fine to go in and wipe out entire villages. In our own British history, Oliver Cromwell, he used Jericho, the story of Jericho, as a justification to go and persecute people who were Catholics, even to their death. And we're not talking very long ago. The Spanish used these passages as their justification for the Spanish Inquisition. So we, we look at these passages and and we can see that there's an awful lot of wrong being done as a, because people have read them and used them to justify their own ends. And people use them to talk about holy war and just war because they read that God said it's fine to go and attack. And I'm not sure that we read the passage and we think about things in exactly the same way. We also see those around us in our society um, who commit atrocities and they say, God told me, God told me to go and do this. And they use that as their justification for, for murder. They use it for, as their justification for rape. And we know that's not true because we understand that God doesn't think those things are right. But God speaks to us. And he says, I want you to go and do this, or I want you to go and do that. And we have to understand what God really wants and what God actually says. So as a pacifist, I find this passage incredibly difficult. But it's all about God's judgment. And whether I like it or not, God judges sin. And God is holy. God warned the people of Ai and the people of Bethel. They understood what God said. God also warned Israel time and time again. And as we read the Old Testament, we see Israel going against what God said. And they reap their rewards for that. God allowed his justice to come. And unfortunately, his justice was that people died. And you say, but how could God condone people being killed? And I just want to remind you about some of the stories you know about. We read the story of Noah. So there's Noah, he's great, he builds his ark, and he rescues the family and all the animals, and isn't it lovely? But what we forget is that actually the flood came and he destroyed. He destroyed mankind. Because actually they weren't following him. And that's God's response to us as sinners is actually we deserve destruction. When we see the exile of Israel, we, we, talked, uh, we talked about this over the last kind of couple of years about Israel coming out from Egypt 
And uh, we see that they come out and they, they cross the sea and, and the sea's parted. And then the army get in the middle of the sea and the sea crashes down and it wipes out the army. And isn't it great? But we forget, actually, that God destroyed the Egyptian army that day. Because Egypt wasn't hearing what he was saying. And actually, he judged them for that. And there was terrible death. Sodom and Gomorrah, we read that story recently, Jericho, just a couple of weeks ago. And as we read these stories, we read that God actually says, I will judge you because you do wrong. And God doesn't always spare those that he loves. And what we read is that God loves us. God is passionate about us. But unfortunately, he can't abide our sin, our going against him. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? He sent Christ. And God sent Christ and he allowed him to die instead of us. So we find ourselves in a different age to the one we read about here in the Old Testament. We're now in a time of a new covenant rather than an old one. The people of Israel were under an old covenant where they had to keep the law. And if they didn't keep it, they had to make sacrifice. And if they didn't make sacrifice, they weren't with God. And they were separated from him. The thing is, none of them could keep the law. And none of us could either. But God doesn't ask us to anymore. Now, there's plenty of stuff in the Bible that was never meant to be repeated. God didn't intend for mankind to respond as mankind did. And again and again, he has to judge them because they don't listen. But once and for all, he sent his son to die so that we don't have to and everything changed and that's the key to this passage that everything has changed God kept trying to get Israel to follow him and they kept rebelling but after Jesus they had a different choice to make a choice to follow to accept that actually Jesus had died in their place and actually they didn't need to have the judgment for the things that they've done wrong God made us God could destroy us if he chooses but he's made a way out for us so I want to have a look just a couple of other passages which I think just help put some context back for us because we read that story and and it wrecks us because we just think it's so, it's so outside of our experience and it's so horrific. But actually, I believe there's some other passages which are really helpful. Psalm 94. I read this recently. And I was really surprised by 
Psalm 94, because psalms, they're like songs, so they're, they're kind of happy things, aren't they? I know some of them are a bit lamenty and a bit like, oh God, it's gone a bit wrong, um, but actually they are songs about, you know, God winning through, and I read Psalm 94 recently, and I just thought, oh my word. Um, it starts off, Lord, the God to whom vengeance belongs, O God of vengeance, let your glorious justice be seen. And I kind of think, did they really know what they were saying when they started off writing that psalm? Did they understand what had been written in the history books that they had? I don't think they did, maybe, because if they understood the vengeance of God, they'd understand how he could respond to them as well. It goes on, How long, O Lord, will the wicked be allowed to gloat? Hear their arrogance, how the evildoers boast. They kill the widows and foreigners and murder orphans. Did Israel not realize what they'd been doing? You know, they're moaning about the foreigners who are doing these things, but they'd done just as much. The Lord isn't looking, they say, and besides, the God of Israel doesn't care. And I'm sure that's sometimes how we might feel. And it finishes up. God will make the sins of evil people fall back upon them. He will destroy them for their sins. The Lord our God will destroy them. Israel understood full well that God had the power to say enough is enough. And for people to be destroyed when they wouldn't follow him. But we know the end of the story. Ephesians 1, 4 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Now you might read that in the context of everything that I've been saying and think, well, I know that I'm not holy because I know what I do wrong. And therefore, if that's how God is, I'm stuffed. Because I just don't live right. And I hold up my hand. But God had a plan. He knew that we can't do it right. That we can't follow the law. He gave the law, but people just couldn't follow it. And God knows that. And actually, the context of Ephesians 1.4 is that God loved us and he sent Christ to die. And therefore, we are made holy. Therefore, we are not separated from God anymore. He realizes that like Israel, we turn away from him again and again and again. And then when we think we get it right, we turn again. And he understands that. And thank goodness he did. Because Christ died once and for all. Not that actually he needs to be re-crucified every time we do something wrong. But no, he paid the price for all of our sin. The past, the present, but also the future. John 1, 17. John was with Jesus, wasn't he? He knew Jesus really well. And uh, this is what he says. For the law was given through Moses, 
But God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you this morning with, you know, even during the worship time, God was highlighting for us that actually there might be stuff that we are finding is holding us back. But actually, he wants to set us free from those things. And actually, in Christ, you can be free. Because that's what he's done. Jesus on the cross, he bought your freedom. Freedom to actually live right. But also, freedom to be forgiven when you muck it up. Yes, there was an old covenant that was really difficult. But yes, there's a new covenant. (laughs) Hebrews 3.15 says, Today... Not next week, but today. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Where was that rebellion? It was in the desert. It was in Jerusalem as they thought they'd got it right and they started building the temple to God and, and then turned away and did other stuff. And God exiled them, didn't he, from Jerusalem for many years. They weren't even allowed to go to the holy city. Because they had done so many things wrong. And God said, enough. And he puts them out. And and it was all taken over. Israel was decimated. Because he said, enough. But they had hard hearts. And I want to encourage you today, don't have a hard heart. If you're struggling with stuff, God wants to soften you this morning. There is mercy of God. And you might, you know, you read a passage like that and you think, God, merciful? Yes, he's merciful. Because he knew how we are and yet he still sent his son to die for us. So I want to finish with this. Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Now, you finish reading there and that kind of half a verse, and it's really depressing, isn't it? For the wages of sin is death. It's a hard message. But, I love it when there's buts in the Bible. But, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? That is the blessing of God. That he takes us as a people who, who are rebellious, who go to him like he's a cash machine and say, bless my pet project, Lord. Be with me as I go and do stuff, even though it's not what you want me to be doing for my life. And we try and get that blessing. And he knows we're like that. And he says, I forgive you and I bless you and I love you. You're my child. And that's what we need to hear this morning that he loves us, and that actually we are no longer under condemnation, but we are free in him. Um, I'd love the worship band to come back. I know I've only spoken for a short time. Um, as I say, it's, um, it was a difficult thing for me to, to read and look at, but I don't want us to, to necessarily focus on that this morning. I want us to focus on, well, what did God do about it? And what did God do about it? He sent Christ. And actually, it's a time to celebrate because we are free. 
And I don't know whether some of you this morning, you've been struggling because actually there's some stuff that's been holding you back. Some stuff that you may feel that, oh, God could never forgive me for that. God should surely destroy me because of this. And God wants to say to you this morning, he loves you and that he wants to set you free. So let's stand. Excellent. So Steve's, Steve's got uh, some, a song to, to lead us in. And uh, let's focus in on him who's done that for us. When we were um, praying uh, before the meeting, um, I had a picture. Um, I, have, um, I have somebody at work, and uh, when you ask, how's your day going, uh, their general response is, it's like wading through treacle. And um, I just had a picture of somebody uh, this morning who was wading in treacle. And um, if you're waist deep in treacle, probably moving is kind of tricky. And you don't get very far. You might get a foot up off the ground, but it's not going to go forward very much. And um, I just got this picture of this person stuck in the treacle. And the picture kind of panned out, and uh, they were actually standing in a pan. Standing in a pan of treacle. And then the, the, the heat got put on underneath the treacle. And it was heating up, and they could move, and they could dance. And I believe um, God would say there's people here who feel like they're, they're wading in treacle a lot of the time. And actually, he wants to turn up his heat. And he wants that treacle to, to go from kind of really sticky to runny and loose so that actually it runs away. And that actually you are free of the treacle once and for all. That you're not stuck, but actually that he wants to turn up his heat and remove it. And you know, as he turns up heat, I think that's an uncomfortable place to be potentially. But he wants to say to you this morning, I want to turn up my heat on you. And actually, as I do that, I'm going to take away the thing that holds you back.